This is Nikki Toyamasito, the executive director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for 20-Minute Takes. On this episode, we talk with Dr. Charles Chavis, Jr. He's a professor at George Mason University in the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Studies. He's also the national co-chair for the United States Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission, and the author of The Silent Shore. It's a book about the lynching of Matthew Williams and the politics of racism in Maryland. In this conversation, we talk about truth, the importance of history, and racial healing, and what it is that churches can do in their local communities. Dr. Charles Chavis, Jr., thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we're really honored to have you um, here and joining the conversation because uh, I'm really curious um, about your thoughts. Uh, because one of the things that I hear in the U.S., particularly around the racial justice conversation, is a lot of folks say, we need to take a look at what South Africa did after apartheid, that that systemic racism that was perpetuated by the government and private sector, that after they took that down, they had these truth and reconciliation commissions. And I have heard so many folks say, you know, the United States has never had this honest and common understanding of our history. Um, and I understand that that's something that you have taken a look at. Um, what is it that you have found and what are some of your observations or recommendations for the U.S. context? Well, I, a lot of my research and work is informed by the ways in which I've studied white supremacy globally, um, specifically. And I think, you know, there's so many different models out there that were birthed out of um, informed by the um, South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But I think it's important for um, us in America to recognize and to learn from um, those commissions that sought out to uh, confront the legacy of white supremacy. And so, indeed, um, there's, you know, hundreds, as I mentioned, of commissions th throughout the, the globe that have spurred it out, um, you know, and a lot of these commissions of those commissions, the most um, the, the commissions that are most consistent and relevant in many ways to the, the experience in America, the black experience in America would be the South African TRC model. But there's also been commissions in other spaces and um, countries as well specifically in South America, Brazil, um, which, again, speak to and are informed by um, how the ways in which we engage and deal with, um, as countries and nations, white supremacy, which um, is foundational in many ways to um, the birth of um, our nation in the United States. And that's one of the most beneficial things, I think, um, that we can learn and glean from the South African Truth um, and Reconciliation Commission and the amazing model that Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, set out with um, within regards to the confronting apartheid and as well as racial violence um, in South Africa. Um, and so the truth phase, um, the truth portion of this work is something that, um, you know, I'm very much so aware that Dr. Gail Christopher in developing um, the framework of truth, racial healing and transformation was indeed informed by what we were able to learn from South Africa in the truth telling phase of the work. Um, and so that's something that is, is deeply um, important um, to the U S this truth telling narrative change, setting the record straight um, and providing a space for 
um, the nation to hear the stories of those who have been most marginalized, specifically regarding their suffering and how um, this suffering and these marginal experiences of terror and trauma inform um, the ways in which we approach um, every system in our society, whether it's education, mm-hmm. legal, etc. Mm. And and I've noticed that the U.S. movement has a little bit of a different phrasing, and I imagine that that's intentional. So in South Africa, South Africa, it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, but the movement here in the United States is called the Truth, the and Racial Healing and Transformation. Can you say a little bit more about why each of those elements is important for this moment in time? Thank you so much. I mean, for that question, Nikki. So. The truth phase, again, is very consistent with what we see with the most truth commissions. However, with the T, uh, Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission, we seek to move from narrative change there, from there to um, an avenue for how we can embrace the shared humanity. And we believe that if people um, throughout this country are exposed to the humanity within these stories and the truth of individual communities, we're able to then go from the truth telling from to there from race to racial healing, right? Where we have dialogues and um, discuss and embrace our shared humanity. And from there, using a restorative or transformative justice model, we, we go towards the conciliation or tr- transformation as, as um, we lay it out. Um, we think that uh, the goal of reconciliation in many ways is unrealistic. Um, from a practical standpoint in the U.S., um, because um, we were never together to begin with, right? In many ways, our nation was shaped on and informed by um, the oppression uh, of Black um, people, Native Americans, um, and women. And so if that is the case at our root, you know, where are we going back to? We have to find a way to transform the system's and move beyond the, the, the um, detrimental elements that our nation was founded on, these systemic um, anti-Blackness, sexism, and racism, right? And we have to acknowledge that and recognize, yes, there are benefits, foundational benefits in the principles of our democracy, but in the midst of, in addition to those benefits, there are elements of our democracy that are built on and informed by the exploitation of marginalized people. Right. Um, and so whatever remedies we produce, these remedies have to be transformative in nature um, and disrupt the system that has continued to manifest throughout the, our country's history. Wow. And I understand that um, there is some great movement on the national level uh, to really move this forward. Uh, it's been something that I, I keep hearing about. I think it has uh, taken in the form of bills uh, in the legislature a time or two. Can you just tell us a bit about what is happening in the national political space around this particular initiative? Sure, sure. And so for a number of years, um, Dr. Gail Christopher, Dr. Marcus Hunter, um, and others have been working with Congresswoman um, Barbara Lee um, to move towards establishing the U.S. Truth Commission. And again, this was based off of and informed by the amazing work of Dr. Gail Christopher um, and the Kellogg Foundation to develop a national network, a coalition, uh, a movement um, to establish um, and incorporate the, the truth, racial healing and transformation framework 
into not only communities, but also into the corporate structure um, in municipalities and local and state governments, right? And so that work was going on in the private sector. However, um, post uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, there was an increase um, in, in the need and demand at the national level. And so this is when I was able to connect with those both um, Dr. Christopher and Dr. Hunter. Um, and we began working with um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, um, as well as um, Senator Booker's team to move towards establishing um, a U.S. Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission. So there's a number of resol- two resolutions, one resolution in the House um, that is moving forward. Um, and that uh, that uh, resolution is based on the work that has been done on the ground, but it's also informed by uh, the ongoing work that's been going on in communities um, that are taking it upon themselves to confront their racial history of their um, communities. And and that's something that I know that you're also really deeply uh, involved in locally in Maryland, in Salisbury, Maryland, but um, on the state leadership level. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is um, that you, you are seeing and, and doing on the ground? Sure, sure. And so in addition to serving as the national co-chair of the USTRHD movement, the uh, Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation movement, I also serve as vice chair for the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this commission um, is the first commission in the nation dedicated, state commission dedicated to investigating um, racial terror lynching. We're tasked by um, the governor um, to investigate the 40 or more cases that continue to grow of racial terror lynching that took place in the state. And one of the communities in which I'm tasked um, in investigating and supporting is that of the Wacomico County um, and Lower Eastern Shore community. Um, more specifically, I work my work centers in Salisbury, Maryland, where I, um, prior to joining the commission, I had been researching and investigating the lynching of um, a 23-year-old laborer around the beginning of the Great Depression, Matthew Williams. Um, so um, a lot of the work that I've been doing in the community, again, following the model of the truth-telling, the research that I've been doing for the past six, five years um, was to really investigate, um, salvage the humanity of Matthew Williams and his community um, and, and begin to literally work with that truth and work, engage with descendants of victims and perpetrators involved in the actual episode, the racial terror lynching, and begin to support transformation locally in this community. And I've been able to do so with support of the mayor um, and others as well. Is that right? So you're working with both. I mean, you're you're engaged in talking with both uh, the family of uh, of Matthew Williams, as well as some of the folks who were involved in his lynching. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And and can you tell us a little bit about w- what that's like? Well, so you know, for the past five years, I've been again doing research, um, and one of the things that um, I bring to my work is this deep connection to the African diaspora, this experience, right? And I oftentimes tell my students that, you know, whenever, not to shy away from their direct connection, of course, we're cognizant of our bias as we seek out to investigate and do the research, but we should not stray away from our direct connection. And so for me, 
um, I've always saw this work as something that um, really is something that is empowering. And it's also something that I'm deeply connected to, right? As you can imagine, just because of the nature of um, the black experience, but also the stories in my family around um, with the witnessing and stories and lore around racial terror and racial violence. Right. And so um, it was for me, history in many ways um, is, is indeed cannot only be used to, you know, discuss um, issues of things of the past and to, you know, pontificate about things of the past. I see history as a tool to help transform. Right. Um, and so there's a utility in history that I, I um, really believe is essential. And this is what I sought out to seek, seek out to do in all of my work. Right. And so it's not history for history's sake. How can this history and truth telling that is revealed help to um, transform and to heal communities? Right. And that's what we had to do, what I wanted to do and I sought out to do in um, in the case of Matthew Williams. And so the book came out. I had discovered um, records that were hidden in the state archives for 90 years um, of eyewitnesses to the lynching of Matthew Williams, as well as um, the, the statements of black eyewitnesses and white eyewitnesses and also those who were complicit and culpable in the lynching. The investigation revealed the names of um, those who lynched Matthew Williams, um, as well as state and local law enforcement and judicial figures who were culpable and complicit in this lynching. And what was so astonishing about this work was um, the mayor actually didn't get a copy of the book until January when everyone else did. I kept a lot of the research close to my vest and work with the descendants as well as local activists. Um, and once he read the book, he uh, openly began to scan the names of those individuals connected to the lynching and note, uh, noted in my book. And one of the things he said in an interview was that we all know the names of these families and they're still oh, here. Is that right? They still hold power over these communities. The Eastern Shore is an old community. Yes. And it's not huge. It's a historic yeah. community. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so on um, the week of our spring break here, March 14th, we took as students for an alternative spring break. And this is when we started the interviewing. Um, we've already had interviewed the descendants of Matthew Williams, the family, the collateral descendants. Um, and this is when we began to engage with and reach out to the descendants of perpetrators. Um, and, you know, in terms of my faith being tested, um, throughout this work, dealing with this very traumatic history, that week was um, indeed the most testing period for me. And when we had to, I had to sit down with an individual whose father was um, directly involved in the lynching and um, who um, pulled the rope um, and sitting down. We had, luckily, and thank God, we had social workers who were there with us um, to support the, um, all of us who were there. Um, but that conversation that we had was one of many that we'll be having with some of these descendants and it's pioneering work. And it's, you know, I see this as indeed um, scholarship practice, but it's also um, justice work and it's faith work. And for me having and the, not only the psychosocial piece and support, 
Um, but also the faith community support is going to be essential in the Christian community as well. As a Christian, a lot of the things that motivate me, um, you know, and keep me centered in this work, you know, it's my faith and it's my understanding of um, Christianity and the redemption, the redemptive nature of Christianity, which is something that we have to recognize when we think about truth commissions, the role of Christianity, the Christian church and the model that, um, you know, we have an opportunity to set regarding confronting our um, historic issues of racism, sexism, and the like, and modeling that for global communities. Um, and so that's something that we have to do in this next phase um, and something that we're continuing to do at the national level to engage the faith community, the interfaith community, but also the Christian community um, uh, specifically in, in doing this. And it begins at the local level, right? Um, so for me, a lot of, you know, everyone's focused on the National Commission, which we are going to continue to drive and push for this. It needs to be established. But it's important to understand that transformation and racial healing happen at the local level. And we have to support local communities that are um, finding ways to come together, like the communities in Salisbury, support them and begin to learn from their models and the precedents that they set and, and grow the National Commission from there. Versus the in, you know the other way the inverse which is Absolutely. how we traditionally do it that's right yeah I, I, I can you say more because I think folks are going to be hearing this and wanting to respond in their local context what is it that you think that faith communities that Christian churches can do um, you know as they're present as they are neighbors in their community where would somebody start or what do you think is the contribution they bring well I think. For me, coming from, um, and this is kind of part of my testimony, but um, I don't mind <laughs> sharing. You know, a lot of my work is informed by my being, growing up in a interracial community, predominantly white community, but um, finding ways to um, deal with and have honest conversations about race, right? Having those difficult conversations. But the, and the humanity piece is so essential. Being able to, you know, um, value people's humanity and disagree on a number of um, political and other elements. That's something that's a space that I kind of come from and I've been able to navigate growing up in North Carolina. And, you know, that's something that I seek to duplicate. Um, but unfortunately there was a fracture that took place in my life um, as well as in the life of many Christians who um, were in, in a lot of these spaces where, they, um, with the rise of President Trump and this um, this movement, there was a fracture um, between, um, I think, really an attack at the interracial um, church, right, and interracial communities of faith, right, and being a victim to that and seeing the um, churches really be torn down and split and divided based on um, the politics of racism is something that I think we have to um, own as a church and as a body and find ways to have these conversations, right, and hold these conversations in spaces. Um, and, and so one of the things that we want to do is begin to engage with churches um, and work with organizations like Sir Joiners and others um, who have been doing this work to hold conversations and really hold a space to heal, right? And we have to acknowledge the damage that's been done 
um, post um, the Trump era regarding the faith communities um, and the, regarding the um, Christian faith. Um, and that work is essential um, and it's rooted in, again, embracing and understanding the truth of um, the most marginalized in our communities, because that's really what this is all about in many ways. And that's why we value truth as the first pillar of this work. Um, you know, we for some reason in America, as we know, we don't want to talk about um, the more uglier p- parts of our history, um, specifically the parts of our history that um, directly impact marginalized communities. Right. Um, and I've made this argument before and I'll make it here on your show as well. You know, you know it's our value and our democracy is um, empowered and strengthened when we're able to have an honest conversation about our truth, our, our history and the history of injustice in our nation. Um, it strengthens our democracy. It doesn't weaken it. And unfortunately, there's an attack on truth telling um, that um, is going on that we have to recognize. And I think as the church have to confront and have to develop curriculum and have to think about um, the ways in which we can promote narrative change and not accept this erasing of um, the histories of our marginalized brothers and sisters, because that's really what's happening. Yes. Well, uh Dr. Charles Chavis Jr., thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Takes. I think um, you have made a compelling case about history being this alive and active and powerful uh, tool for transformation. And I do hope that uh, Christian churches and different communities recognize that they might have a pretty key role to play. Um, I I believe that uh, Dr. Chavis and his team have developed um, a website that if you want to find uh, local uh, groups that are doing work in truth, racial health, uh, racial healing and transformation um, in their community, uh, that you might be able to find other people who are also doing that either in your community or nearby. And we'll include that website in the show notes. Um, but do- Dr. Charles Davis Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at ChristiansforSocialAction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends. 